Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome all of you to this um, Grattan Institute and New South Wales State Library policy pitch event on special interest influence on policy. Um, my name is Danielle Wood. I am the Budget Policy and Institutional Program Director at the Grattan Institute. Um, I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Gadigal people who are the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Um, I'm very pleased today to welcome two fantastic panellists on this topic. Um, I started looking at this issue of um, special interest influence on policy several months ago. And I find when you come to a new topic, um, sort of a handful of names keep coming up, both because they've got deep expertise in the area, but also because they've got really interesting things to say. And both AJ and Lindy are very much in, in that handful of names in this space. Um, so AJ is a Professor of Public Policy and Law at the Centre for Governance and Public Policy at Griffith University. He's also a board member of Transparency International and Transparency International Australia. He was a former Senior Investigations Officer for the Commonwealth Ombudsman, a former Associate to Justice Tony Fitzgerald, and he currently leads the Australian Research Council project on strengthening Australia's national integrity system priorities for reform. Um, so we'll be hearing a lot more about that through the course of this session. Um, and we have Dr Lindy Edwards, who is a political scientist from the University of New South Wales. She's worked as an advisor in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, a press gallery journalist for the Sydney Morning Herald, and as head of policy for Natasha Stott-Despoja when she was leader of the Australian Democrats. Her books include the bestseller, How to Argue with an Economist, Reopening the Political Debate in Australia, which I have to say as an economist made me feel slightly nervous that there's so many copies of that floating around. Um, she's also written The Passion of Politics, The Role of Ideology in Australia, and Neoliberalism Beyond the Free Market. She is the author of the influential Dark Money Report on Political Donations in Australia and is currently writing a book on lobbying and corporate power in Australian democracy, which I'm very much looking forward to reading. Um, so if you can please join me in welcoming AJ and Lindy. <laughs> um, so tonight what we're planning to do is have a very broad ranging conversation about special interest influence on policy. Um, I've first got interested in this topic um, because working at Grattan, we spend a lot of time um, thinking about policy, analysing policy, advocating for policy that, that we think is in the public interest. And, you know, when you spend a bit of time in the policy game, you certainly see there's, there's various points at which sort of good policy can fall over. And, and one of the reasons that can happen, not, not the only reason, but one of the reasons is if you have well-resourced, highly motivated interests that are sitting on the other side and trying to run interference. Um, and when I'm talking about um, special interests or vested interests, I want to make clear um, I'm not just talking about big business. Obviously, um, they are a special interest group. Uh, it can also be unions. It can also be not-for-profits. So in different debates, it's different interest groups um, that have a lot to gain or lose. Um, so Grattan's done a report, which we're going to be putting out in a couple of weeks, which is looking at the different ways special interests influence policy. And we focus particularly on the levers of influence. So we look at political donations, we're looking at lobbying, we're looking at um, hiring former ministers and staffers that can um, provide networks, we're looking at public campaigns. And we're really asking the question, you know, have these kind of levers of influence led to undue influence on policy and have we got the regulatory settings right? Um, so please look out for that report. And I just wanted to say at the start, none of that is to say that the Australian system is hopelessly corrupt. I certainly don't think our research suggests that. And I think 
hopefully my fellow panellists would agree. Um, but certainly there are points of concern and we think there are things that we can do to our institutions which will make the system a whole lot better. Um, so the process for tonight is we're going to sit here and have a chat for 50 minutes or so. I'll, I'll sort of direct some questions at the panellists. We've prepared some charts which are really there as a bit of a conversation starter and also to make sure you've got some facts and figures on hand about these things. Um, and then we'll have about 20 minutes of, of questions at the end. Um, as I said, it will be a broad ranging discussion. So please feel free to, to ask questions about the details of anything we discuss. Um, and actually I need to remind you, if you are a Twitterer, um, our handles are up there on the slide and the hashtag is forward thinking. Um, so we won't be offended if you're looking at your phones. I'm gonna assume that you're tweeting and not texting your friends. <laughs> Okay, so I wanted to start with talking about trust. Um, first of all, because I think it's a bit of a hot political topic at the moment, but I really think this question of special interest influence plays into these questions of trust. Because in a world where people think that special interests are getting um, an unfair go or getting additional influence on policy, I think that really undermines people's trust in the system. Um, so I spent a bit of time looking at questions of trust last year and it really doesn't matter what indicator you pull out, we are at a low point by historical standards. Um, so this data is from the Australian Electoral Study that's taken after each federal election. Um, again, you know, I've just chosen two indicators there, I could have chosen any in that survey. After the 2016 election we were at a low point in the history of that survey which has been taken since 1969. So it bounces around a lot, but people were more likely to believe that people in government looked after themselves than in any point since 1969. They were less likely to believe that people in government were trusted to do the right thing. Um, AJ's work at Griffith with Transparency International, which um, compiles the global corruption barometer, also has some data on trust here. You can see that in terms of trust in confidence, of people in federal government to do a good job at just carrying out their responsibilities. That's been in decline over the decade. And all of this correlates with a growing concern about the role of special interests in politics. Um, so I wanted to put up an, another slide from the Global Corruption Barometer because I found this one particularly extraordinary. Um, AJ, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this data and, and what you think it means about Australians' perceptions of special interest influence. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks, Danny, and very good evening to everybody and good to see some familiar faces um, and some new friends. Um, so, yeah, so we, so we just a couple of weeks ago, we were really pleased to release a composite of data, actually. Some of it's from the Australian Constitutional Values Survey, which Griffith University has run over quite a period of time now, and some of it's from the Global Corruption Barometer that's a collaboration with Transparency International. Um, and um, I guess the key thing is that this time, for this survey, we, we actually, for the first time, got a very good sense of the relationship between trust and that declining trust, which is caused by a multiplicity of things, um, and corruption and concerns about corruption. So we, could pin, we can pin that relationship more accurately now. Um, and, uh, but also what people mean when they're talking about corruption. And so this data from the Corruption Barometer was it's part of a, a first attempt globally, actually, to start closing the gap between something that people see, which is very relevant to Australia, which does have a comparatively low, is, is comparatively a low corruption environment when you compare us on things like bribery and, um, you know, hard graft, um, and yet there is a 
a strong perception amongst the community, similar to many developed countries, that people are in it for themselves and that the system is corrupt and that individual office officials are corrupt and politicians are corrupt. So what is it that people are meaning when they say corrupt? Um, because it's clearly not or unlikely to be lots and lots of bribery, you know, people going around with, with bags of money. And so uh, this, this is one of a number of questions where we actually said, okay, well, what is driving this perception? And, and it's not just perception, it's also experience. Um, it's a combination of what people witness and observe and what they suspect based on what they hear reported in the media. So the fact that um, a, a majority, a small majority um, of, of citizens actually have personally witnessed or suspected that an official has uh, made a decision or a politician has, has made a decision um, in favour of somebody in return for or who's given them political donations or support is, um, is, is giving us a fix on the extent to which people think that that sort of influencing um, is, uh, is the type of corruption that they're talking about, not just hard graft. So it fills in that, that very important gap. Fantastic. Um, Lindy, I wonder, do you buy this hypothesis that um, concern about special interest influence on policy is related to falling trust? And, and what else do you think might explain some of those figures on trust that we put up before? Um, okay, so I think it's um, it's really only one part of the problem. I think if you go back to, I think it was the first slide, and you'll notice there that the trend line is that things really got a lot worse after 2007. So this period of revolving doors of prime ministers um, has been very strongly associated with this decline in trust. Now, in the research that I've done, every time I've gone and looked at an issue that's where... Um, when I've been looking at what's happened in the last 10 years and going, oh, that's a bit dodgy. I wonder what happened under the Howard government. Um, was it better then? And when I go back, I'm not finding it was better then. Um, that the issues that I'm uncovering in my research now have been there for a long time. So I tend to suspect that part of what's, you know, part of this declining trust story is that because we've got a big realignment a big ideological realignment going on in our politics at the moment, which is a big part of this instability within the parties that actually, um, that I think there's a tendency in the public to, for, to think that when our leaders can't work out how to solve a particular set of problems, that they're doing it for the wrong reasons, that people are doing it. It's because people are narrowly self-interested that that's why somebody hasn't come up with a great solution to these problems, rather than it actually being quite difficult at the moment to work out how to line up all of the different groups in Australian the Australian community on a bunch of issues at the moment. So. I think that's only part, so I think that's a really big part, this ideological realignment is a big part of why we're seeing the decline in trust. On the other hand, my research has also brought out that there is, to be honest, a bigger influence problem than I'd expected, that from my time in government, you know, my sense of government had been, oh, it's really remarkably challenging when you've got a whole bunch of competing interests and perspectives and you've got a corral them all together to do something sensible and then you've got to come up with one set of rules that applies to people in diverse circumstances. That's really hard to do. And I actually took a lot of heart about the fact that it seemed to me that government seemed to get that right about 60% of the time and that that seemed to be enough to make us one of the best governed countries in the world. Um, <laughs> it's all relative. Um, but I must admit the research that I've been doing most recently um, has been 
really disheartening. Like it's been like I've been like quite shocked that it's actually going into a deeper has been worse than I expected. So not because you think it's getting worse over time, but because you've perhaps focused on particular issues where there's been a problem? Is that? I think it's a really interesting question. Um, when we, we were actually at a Grattan gathering earlier in the year and it was very interesting the process in which everybody who was inside the tent thought the problems weren't that bad and the people who were outside it looking in thought it was thought it was more serious. And and I must admit, I look back on that and thought, oh, when I was inside the tent, I thought it wasn't that bad. Um, and now I'm outside the tent and I'm just researching it. It's, it's looking quite a lot worse, actually. Mm. And that, that's actually part of the problem, that there's a whole bunch of stuff that you think is not that big a problem when you're in the middle of it, that you realise when you're outside it, maybe it is. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting observation. And I will say, I did try and get some people inside the tent to come along tonight <laughs> and, and defend the position, but it's actually quite hard to get them to, to turn up to public events, it turns out. Um, I want to talk now about donations. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of people are concerned about the role of money in the political system. And I think there's sort of two reasons. There's, there's an idea that, you know, money can, can buy access and can open doors that people with money don't necessarily have. And I think then there's an idea that money can buy influence, that you may have more persuasion um, in the context of debating a specific policy if you're a major donor to a party, say. Uh, and I want to talk about both of those issues. But before we go there, I think, um, you know, something that strikes you if you start looking at the political donations data is just how little we actually know about the money in the system. Um, so, Lindy, I wanted to ask you about this because you've spent a lot of time pulling apart this data and, and writing about the hidden or dark dark money, as you call it. Mm -hmm. um, how big is the dark money and what are the um, issues with the disclosure regime that lead to the fact that we know so little? Okay. So, when I started doing this research, I had sort of assumed that Australia would have a professional, functional, competent financial disclosure system. And I was really shocked to discover that we don't, in fact, at all. Um, that actually of the income that the parties are receiving, um, only about 15% of it is transparently disclosed. That there's about, now what are, which, which, which year's numbers have we got up there? Um, so, they, so the donations can come in in two groups. So there's, there's donations which are directly declared. There's um, donations that come from fundraising bodies, which in a way almost sort of launder the money that we don't know who gave the money to the fundraising bodies. So that generally, um, so you get about, about that sort of, you know, 10 to 15% where we go, where they've clearly said, this is the donor, this is who they are, and they've given it to us. You've got another sort of 10 to 15% which is um, which has come through fundraising bodies. You then have this other fascinating category called other receipts, which I noticed that a certain number of you know, which academic research actually often just treats as raw donations because it looks an awful lot like raw donations. It's, um, and it's just shockers with anomalies that you sit there and go, oh, right, this group, sometimes, you know, they seem to give $20,000 every few months and sometimes it's declared as a donation and sometimes it's declared as another receipt and, um, and it's completely messy. Um, 
And then there's 50 to 60% of the income that we actually don't know anything about at all. Um, that it, there's no disclosure at all about of, of that money. Yep, uh, we're finding exactly the same things and having exactly the same issues. It's, um, you know, terribly challenging data to work with for all those reasons. Um, some other things we found looking at the political donation system as Grattan is, first of all, we actually have quite a high amount of, of private money in the system by international standards. So in terms of our public funding, we're sort of in the middle of the pack, but we actually do get a lot in terms of private money. And we've also found that the donations are very concentrated. So this is focusing now on declared donations, so the stuff we actually can see where it's coming from. And, and what we found is that more than 50% of those declared donations are coming from just 5% of donors. And obviously the risk is if you're getting most of your money from a, a small handful of donors is that you're potentially beholden to, to that group. They have a much stronger threat of, of taking away the money and it will have a big impact on, on party finances. Um, so that's certainly, I think, a risk in our system of undue influence because it is so skewed in that way. Um, so I want to talk now about the question of the link between donations and access. Uh, and often, um, you know, this is kind of an anecdotal discussion. Um, something we've done in the context of our forthcoming report is to try and actually link money and access. We can't do that at the federal level because we don't have visibility over who our federal ministers meet with and we're certainly recommending that they should be publishing their diaries. Ministers, to their credit, do publish their diaries in New South Wales and Queensland. So we've looked at those diaries and linked them to donations data in that state. And what we find is that donors actually have a pretty good strike rate of, of getting a meeting, or the major donors at least. Um, so it's certainly suggestive that there may be a link between money and access. And the more direct link between money and access is actually the fundraising dinners that, that Lindy mentioned. Um, you know, it's, it's very explicit in a way. You know, you pay $10,000, you can sit at a table with the Prime Minister or the Treasurer or the Premier. Um, so in that way, access is actually for sale. And as Lindy said, they're actually um, funds that we actually know very little about. They're declared as other receipts rather than donations. So they go into this sort of pool and we can't necessarily see who's actually paying to, to attend these dinners. So that's certainly a weakness in the system. But I want to sort of move to the point of the link between donations and influence now, which I think is the, the really pointy end and the one that's sort of difficult to, to pull apart. What's your research thrown up, Lindy, in terms of whether there is a link between money and policy influence? So my research has brought up very much that there's an influence issue and donations is part of that story, but it's certainly, but it's not all of it. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is to notice that the big corporates tend to have really diverse giving strategies, um, that sometimes people give big donations actually because they don't have any other access or leverage. They're like, it's actually because I'm, you know, I'm a relatively powerless player that I'm going to put money on the table, whereas you go to some other big players and you go, oh, you know, why, why didn't you guys give anybody a donation? And they're like... The Prime Minister's never not returned my call. Um, <laughs> so, um, and so it's quite interesting actually watching um, a bunch of policy battles play out and then you go and look in the donations register to see uh, who's given. And it's quite interesting because some players are clearly using donations and you can see them their strategic giving. And it's quite interesting to notice that other players aren't. And 
it's not clear if that money's just hidden, if they've got different points of leverage. Um, but it's certainly, it's absolutely in the mix. And certainly when we look at a number of the big policy controversies, um, I think, um, you know, if we look at something like the mining tax reforms, if we look at things like reform of the financial services sector, if we look at things like Pokey's reform, um, we even look at things like, you know, things like regulating video piracy and suddenly you find that village roadshows dropped $700,000 in political donations all of a sudden. Um, I, I kept seeing their name pop up in the donations data and I could not work out why, but that's very interesting. <laughs> My student I actually had some un an undergrad student of mine brought that to my attention because I'd sort of, you know, I was trying to get him a bit interested in Australian politics and he's like, what do you care about? Oh, I care about computer games. All right, here's this fight about the regulation of computer games. Go and see if you can work out who fiddled it and what political donations you can find. And um, and it turned out, that, and it, you know, and, and he dug it out and he's like, look at this. <laughs> Um, and in that instance, actually, that was part of his finding was that um, was that despite the fact that all of the expert evidence on the anti-piracy was arguing for one position, um, both of the major parties ran quiet on the issue and adopted the pro-village roadshow issue on that one. Yeah, I think what's interesting about what you just said, Lindy, is that there's no evidence that people don't donate for, with the expectation and the intention that that will increase their status or their, their influence. Um, people might withhold from donating because they don't need to. Um, but, um, and I think that's, um, you know, that, that sort of says it all really, because I mean, it, it's interesting to reflect on sort of the good old days when the big corporates would give small amounts of donation, but in equal chunks to both sides of politics. And so you could then pretend, well, you, everybody could then pretend, well, that, this is just contributing to politics and to political debate and political life and even share. What it was really saying was, we have an influence and we want you all to know that we intend to exert our influence upon all of you. Um, and that's, you know, that's fine. That's good. That, that's not special then, in a, in a way. It's, um, but, what's, but, the, but the consequence of the, the realisation that other people don't play it that way and that people are making donations to one side and or bigger donations to one side with the expectation that a particular party or particular decision makers will do things for them or that policy will be influenced in their direction is actually driving a lot of the big sort of well, the, the big corporates who would, we would want and expect to be responsible away from giving at all. So increasingly uh, large responsible companies will say, no, our policy is no donations to anybody. Um, because of the fact that clearly there is the general perception and very often apparently the reality and that the, the how often the reality is I guess the unknown question but um, that this is being done in order to achieve particular outcomes and to divert policy from what would have otherwise been the merits of the policy you know if thrashed out based on on equal merits. I think Lindy's point about the change over time is really interesting because the uh, and the fact that the ideological shift that you're talking about, the fact that governments are now, I, I don't know that they're lazier in terms of just saying, well, we can't sort it out, therefore we'll just go with the most the people who are you know giving us the most political traction or support or whatever. Um, I think it's a sign of how much harder government is in the 
in the modern day with the 24-hour news cycle and the whole instability and the volatility which just breeds itself. So it's just it's a very hard business. And it's been made worse by simple things like demographics. You know, Australia is a lot is, is a lot bigger now than it used to be population-wise. Um, it's been made bigger by uh, globalisation and competitiveness. It's like the stakes are much higher. Um, and the uh, the margins are you know are much smaller, and so the game's much tougher in terms of in terms of what business is prepared to do. Um, and um, so there's a whole lot of factors, and these factors are at work globally in increasing corruption risk everywhere. Um, and part of our challenge and is that our traditional complacency about the idea that we're not exposed to these forces um, or that we won't succumb to them somehow is part of our problem in terms of saying, oh, well, you know, there's always been political donations. There's never been a problem. But I think, I think there's a combination of things which we really have to take very seriously, which are a bil an accumulation of, very, of, of all sorts of factors that are making it a much, much more um, uh, dangerous game, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I often think of it in terms of there being sort of three big dynamics which are creating a threat in this space at the moment. One of them is that over the last sort of 30 or 40 years, we've seen economic power consolidate and concentrate. That um, So we've got a smaller number of bigger and more economically important companies. And over the last 30 years, there's also been a massive expansion in the professional lobbying industry that, you know, professional lobbying is new enough that the person who is described as Australia's first lobbyist is still kicking around. Um, there's now... Who is that? <laughs> I, I, oh, I was going to say Dale Budd. <laughs> um, but, you know, now there's sort of, um, there's what there's considered to be about 5,000 lobbyists in Canberra and that that game has become much, much more professional. Um, so on the one hand, you've got this sort of increase in sort of corporate power. On the one hand, you've got a decline in what you might call the countervailing power on the other hand, that you've got the sort of, you've got the decline of trade unions, you've got a lot of the charitable sector that used to do advocacy stuff um, that through the process of contracting out have are all subject to gag orders now. So that sort of countervailing power is weaker than it used to be. And then this third difficulty, which is this, um, what I sort of describe as this sort of ossifying culture or ossifying elite culture amongst, I think this is our first, you know, I think I think Rudd Gillard was I, the first real generation of student politicians to go through and become part of our parliament. And that idea that you've now got people who are becoming part of a subculture in their early 20s and that there's a whole number of, a whole range of aspects of that subculture which I think make them more sensitive and vulnerable to pressure. Um, that there's lots of things that when I look at my case studies, you sit there and you go, they back down or they, you know, they, they backtracked when when corporate pressure comes on in some situations, unless there's a different kind of political crisis, in which case they hold their ground. And you go, so they could hold their ground, they just choose not to. And that there's a bunch of sort of elements of the culture in this sort of subculture, which make them, I think, more vulnerable to that interesting thesis just before we we talk a bit more about lobbying because I do want to get to that um, I just want to go back to the question of donations and what we should do <laughs> um, which is always a challenging question um, you know money's not going to come out of the system entirely there's sort of constitutional barriers to it um, and there's potentially reasons why you want to have money in the system I think you know the flip side of the point you made Lindy that 
you know, people might not get access otherwise. You know, in a world where you don't have money driving access for these people, is it just the insiders and the big corporates that the Prime Minister does pick up the phone for that are actually going to be in the year in, in that world? Um, but, you know, I think we're probably in agreement that um, at the moment the arms race between the parties is not leading to a, a good political culture. Um, so our, the recommendations in our report are essentially, um, first of all, to boost transparency, so reducing the disclosure threshold. At the moment, you only have to disclose donations over 13,800, bringing that down to 5,000, um, requiring parties to aggregate donations. So at the moment, um, people can split donations under the threshold, and that means, at least in the party disclosures, you don't see those. Um, and then the more um, sort of dramatic recommendation is that we should be ca capping party funding on political advertising in election periods, and that should there should also be a cap for third parties. And the idea of that is, of course, to stop the arms race and, and also to reduce the um, exposure to any individual donor. Um, so if, you, if that cap is binding, um, each individual donor should be replaceable or partly replaceable. So to try and kind of reduce the, the impact of donor influence. Um, do you agree with those recommendations? Do you have alternative views over what should change? Um, I do agree with those recommendations. Um, and there's a slightly disheartening element to this that, um, um, that, that I actually think that um, so, the name is going to suddenly escape me. Um, the UNSW law professor who... George. Oh, George Williams, that's right. Um, and he was talking about the fact that each year he rolls up to the Senate inquiry and each year he gives them the same recommendations and each year they decide to not do anything with them. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, the idea of reducing the thresholds, um, making it harder to split payments. So one of the problems in the system at the moment is because the $13,000 threshold is so high and the parties you can give either to different branches in the party and they don't have to aggregate them. You can Basically, you can hide a big payment by breaking it up into small payments. Um, they actually don't even have to aggregate payments made on different days at the moment. Um, so... So there's, you know, so doing things that stop that kind of splitting, um, doing things that prevent them hiding the other receipts, that at the moment um, lots of money, which is very clearly donations, is being mixed in with things which are clearly legitimate. And, um, and often it's not clear what it is. You don't know what it is. So I think those sorts of things would be valuable. But I also think that there's... What we really need for this stuff to work is we need a situation where a when a decision is being made, the journalist who is watching that decision being made can sit there at their desk and go, who are these stakeholders? Who paid how much money um, associated with this legislation and what meetings did they get? And that data, at the moment, you'd spend weeks and weeks going through spreadsheets to find it. So it just doesn't get out there. And that and, and actually, it would be 19 months after the fact as well. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it would be 19. So that idea that you need real-time disclosures, because at the moment, yes, we wait 18 months or 19 months for them for it to come out, um, and linking up the donations with the diaries, with the legislation that they're making submissions on, so we can actually pull up an issue and say, has money influenced this? Given, as you say, these recommendations uh, are not new, 
Um, what do you think we need to do to, to build a political consensus on this? That's maybe a question for both of you. Yeah, I think it's a very good question. I think, I think we need to translate the current level of concern about imploding trust into and, and, and the, the consciousness that this is about concerns about influence and about loss of control. It's about popular loss of control of the political system and that alienation that is caused by, actually caused by lots of things, but then it's the absolute icing on the cake or the nail in the coffin when people turn around and say, oh, well, there's no point worrying about it anyway because you need to have, you know, that money or you need to be that company. And, <coughs> and that's where transparency is vital, you know, coming from Transparency National. Transparency is vital and real-time disclosure or almost real-time disclosure of political donations like in Queensland introduced last year with a one thousand dollar, you know, disclosure threshold, it's that's those sorts of things are possible, um, and just and 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 transparency is quite achievable. I think those those are absolutely realistic reforms. You know, it should be absolutely not negotiable. But then it's the question of okay, what happens when those things are disclosed? And a lot of people would go, oh, well, those companies that are buying lots of decisions have got lots of money. I'll never have that much money. I'll never be able to influence decisions. And just go well. You know, we're out of the game, folks, and we end up like America. So, um, the that, that there's a much bigger question about how you trans how we translate the level of public concern into the next stage, like the real regulation, if you like, of interests and things like funding caps and and more sensitive things that also raise constitutional you know questions that have to be navigated and people will challenge them you know constitutionally and so. Um, so it's yeah, it's definitely translating it into that next level, but I think the key thing is that we still live in an era where I believe, call me naive and optimistic, and um, that by far the majority of parliamentarians, federal parliamentarians, state parliamentarians, do not want to end up with a community that's alienated from politics. Unlike in the U.S., where and this is not true of all, <laughs> there are people in the parliaments who would love to just be able to have most people out of the political game, out of the voting game, and just pander to the extremes but and try and mobilise the extremes. Those people are there. But I think that they are definitely in a minority. I think the latest leadership outcome in Canberra shows that they're not in a majority. Uh, and, um, and so I think we have to act while we've still got a substantial, I'm, I'm interested to know what Lindy thinks, and you, Danny, um, but I think we've still got a substantial majority of parliamentarians who don't want to go down that route. If we can make them understand that this is what they have to do for us not to all go down that route, then I think there's a, a sort of a fighting chance. That and an opposition that is prepared to make some bold political promises because they need them to get elected. Um, that always helps. I'd suggest that the thing that we need to get movement is a cracking great scandal um, that actually when you look around all over the world actually when you say who's got a fabulous regime and who's got an awful one and the really good regimes are all places that have had really horrible scandals most recently um, so I must admit personally I'm, I'm you know I'm absolutely in for the you know We've got to work out how to sort of, you know, it's very difficult that in fact the, it's all, the disclosure is so poor it's actually hard to expose what the great scandal uh, should be. Um, so there's sort of a circular issue there. But, um, 
you know, I, I, I'm kind of wondering, you know, my, the question I'm asking myself at the moment is, can we find a way to turn the fact that it took 10 years to get a Banking Royal Commission into some kind of a, um, it, you know, turn a little bit of the rage associated with that into a, a need for some donations reform? I had another point. Back to you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, why don't we move on and talk about lobbying, because that's obviously a huge part of this story. Um, you know, lobbying is quite clearly kind of it's got bad connotations, but it's a healthy part of the democratic process. We want different groups affected by policy going in and making representations to our politicians. Um, you know, at the very least, it's a protection against, um, you know, unexpected or poorly thought through legislation. Um, our concern arises, though, if certain groups are getting a lot more access than others. Um, so something we've done as part of our report, I mentioned the the ministerial diaries in New South Wales and Queensland. We've we've done a lot of work analysing those, and it becomes very clear when you start to look at those that certain groups um, do get a lot more access than others. And we certainly point to industries that seem to be very well represented compared to their share of the economy. Um, so I'm keeping a few things up my sleeve, so I'm not going to put some charts of those up. But if if you're interested in that, have a look at the report. Um, what we do know at the Commonwealth level, which is not very much at all, um, we have a lobbyist register. Um, so anyone that's a commercial lobbyist, so a, a third party company that's job is, is to lobby for different groups, um, has to register and they list their clients as part of the register. So we can see there that um, business is, is clearly um, very well represented amongst the clients of commercial lobbyists. Um, and, and very much what we've called high regulation businesses. So they're businesses working in sectors where government decisions um, have a big impact on the bottom line, who wins, who loses, things like mining and resources and, and um, property, those sorts of industries. Um, so interested, Lindy, you know, you've mentioned this already, you were a political advisor. Um, what role did you see lobbying as playing in determining policy outcomes or policy thinking? Um, in uh, Maybe the Democrats isn't the most representative of examples, so I might ask AJ this as well. Yeah, look, it's, um, I was going to say, it's probably quite different for, for minor Senate parties versus the major parties. Um, but the thing that, the thing about this sort of, uh, about the way that influence operates is that the whole political decision-making process is so much more human than people tend to think that actually you've got a bunch of ordinary people, some of them are smart, some of them aren't, some of them are hardworking, some of them aren't, an amazing amount of information and complexity that they've got to get across and that process and they were required to make decisions about stuff they don't know anything about. And that the effect of that means that, you know, if you've got decision makers who are sitting there with, you know, very little of the information, the process of, you know, one of those things you say, one of those things for, for, the, for something like the Democrats when you had a minor party and, you know, you'd go into a sitting week and there'd be this enormous raft of legislation you had to get through that week and you didn't know the details of any of it. Or, you know, you had very remarkably little expertise of going, wow, there's 600 pages of tax law here. We've got to decide whether we're going to say yes or no. How do you manage that? And you end up relying enormously on lobbyists to come in and say, look, there's only three things in the 600 pages that matter. 
and you should do this and that's why it's a really bad idea. And that that process is also really human. Like you'd actually watch lobbyists working out when the vote was going to be to be the last person who spoke to the member before they'd go into the chamber so that their story or their um, their perspective was the most recent thing that people had heard. So in that sort of context... Um, you know, I think quite often we look at this stuff and people kind of think, oh, the really bad stuff, I'm sure it's, you know, horrible corruption and money changing hands. Most of the influence game isn't that. The most of it is actually a much more human muddling through kind of an exercise where one of the things that's been a real issue with the additional resources that some sectors are being able to put into the lobbying is that, you know, is that some some interests have an army of lobbyists who are in everybody's ear saying, oh, the reality of this situation and the way it'll actually work in practice is this, while other interests aren't really heard. So that's actually almost the most pernicious or the most problematic aspect in a way. And it's it's not it's not the um, you know it's not the, the the horrible corruption that people sometimes think it is. Yeah, I think I think the human side is very significant because when you think about the, the growth of the lobbying industry, who goes into it? It's people who have got relationships um, with the decision makers. Um, and of course, if you're intending to influence governments, and I, you know, I work as a ministerial advisor for a state government, um, then if, you, if you're intending to influence governments, then if you're going to set up a big business, then you're going to set it up with, with a couple of people from each side of politics so that then you can talk to everybody. But who do you send to talk to this lot over here? Well, you send one of their own. Um, and it is actually becomes, it's partly a friendship thing. I, I, you know, I can help you out and, you know, and I trust you because I've worked with you or you were on our side or whatever. And so you can't actually disso dissociate um, the policy or the, the interest that's being advocated for and being paid for um, from the personal connection, doing a deal with, for a mate, with a mate, with, you know, getting a mate's help. And, um, and that to me, when I was in there, was the thing that I found most bizarre because, uh, because you would have lots of meetings with lots of people, lots of interest groups, and you'd go, right, yeah, well, the valid interest, valid interest, valid interest, important to talk to, don't really like them, but important to talk to. You like them quite a bit, but, you know, still we're not going to do everything they say. And then there'd be this other person. Why are we meeting with this other person? Oh, because so-and-so, who's the lobbyist, said we should. And, oh, right, Okay. Is, is that the only reason? He said, yeah, well, I couldn't, not, I couldn't turn down the meeting. You know, we had to have the meeting, had to go along with it. So somebody's got access simply because they've bought a friendship or the other half of a friendship or a, or a relationship. And so that, that's what I find it really weird. That's what I found really weird. And I said, you know, this meeting doesn't make sense to me compared to all the other ones. But that was quite a long time ago in a, much, in a state level where it's much easier to manage all of those issues than it is now, and especially at a federal level, when it's much, much more complex. And, and so um, I think that's part of what makes that really interesting, that, that personal connection element, is that you also do see it there in the hard corruption cases. It's a very slippery slope. And I think if you think about um, you know, the poor travails of Minister Peter, Peter Dutton at the moment, and, you know, of course, you know, we believe there is, it's all smoke and there is no fire and blah, 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 blah. But the, um, but the problem is the association with, of personal mateship, that, that it's so easy 
for something that could be quite above board to be completely tainted and for public confidence to go down the drain because the process was not sufficiently strong to protect him or a minister against the obvious allegation that this was being done, um, you know, this was nepotism or favouritism or whatever. And and the, you get to the hard corruption cases, and in Queensland we do have them, um, and in Western Australia we've had them, and in New South Wales I believe there's been a few as well, where, where, where you, you ask you ask the not yet we're just waiting for that one, um, but although there you know there are there are there are, um, and but the you ask that minister who is now in jail, and it could be any one of those three states, um, and they they basically say yeah no well we took the money. Because I wasn't going to, you know, it was a mate helping me out. So I took the money. So what's wrong with that? You know, it's like, and you know, I didn't make any decision particularly. In fact, well, I might have. But oh, that's not why I made the decision. So it's because they were a mate. Oh, and they happened to give me money. So it's, it's, it's at such a slippery slope to before we, we are just like all those countries that, that we, you know, presume that we could never possibly be like. It's such, I mean, it's such a powerful human instinct, though, isn't it, to, you know, want to do things for a friend or someone you know and like, and you can see where it's, you know, a small decision around a visa, you know, maybe you can pick up the phone, you can sort it out easily, you, you can sort of see how those things end up happening, as you say, if you don't have the processes in place in order to deal with them. Um, on the question of, um, you know, friendships and connections and growing influence, um, we certainly see that a growing share of um, people that are on the lobbyist register, they have to indicate whether or not they were previous governor, government official and the share of lobbyists that are the previously government officials has been growing over time. So it suggests, I think, that perhaps these firms are coming, you know, a bit more savvy with, with these things and they are really appreciating how much connections matter. Um, we've also done a piece of work um, tracing ministers, um, basically every federal minister since the early 90s and looking where they went after politics. Um, and you can see that about a quarter end up in what we call special interest roles. Um, so, a, you know, pretty substantial fraction of uh, political leaders are going on to these types of lobbying roles after political life, um, I suspect. And certainly some journalists and interest groups have have traced the careers of advisors in a similar way and particularly in sort of the resources sector and the defence sector we we see a really sort of well-oiled revolving door so you actually get movement both ways you get the advisors going into lobbying roles the lobbying going into advisor roles um, I think Transparency International did had a look at those kind of questions in the the mining sector and they talked about the culture of mateship in that in that sector um, do you want to talk a little bit about well, I, I think the key thing, there. yeah, certainly. I mean, and that's been a, it's a very important focus of of TI globally and here in Australia is particularly looking at, at how these issues pan out in the mining sector, and that's with the support of the BHP Billiton Foundation and other other um, corporates as well. Um, I should I should stress, you know, um, and and I guess I guess the re the the main the the two big lessons from that sort of research into in terms of corruption risk that we face along with other countries um, that that our research found was that 
again, it goes back to sort of that complacency, that belief that we can't slip down that slope. Um, because the two big risks, the first one was simply due diligence or lack of due diligence in terms of our regulatory processes, our, our failure to check that people who are applying for mining exploration and extraction licenses, you know, actually have a track record of non-compliance or of corrupt practice or of other, other things that if you just checked, you'd go, hang on a minute, maybe we should be a little less cargo cult. Um, you know, maybe this isn't the 1950s when whichever company that wants to come along and mine bauxite on Cape York or wherever, um, you know, we don't just go, oh, wonderful. Um, and um, so that was, you know, that's an example. And, and it's the same with revolving doors and those sorts of, of conflict of interest risks. I think we have to recognise that it's actually in, you know, it's, people have a right to get the jobs that are going to be good for them and possibly good for the country and, you know, and all of those sorts of things. And, um, and so there's, uh, it, what's really difficult is for the people who are caught up in that, there are a lot of decision makers and ex-decision makers, you can't see the wood for the trees for themselves. You've got to be able to look at it from the outside or some, we, we have to collectively look at it from the outside and go, well, no, actually, we need a better system for restoring some confidence to this, to know that policy is not being perverted by these, these relationships, because you can't do it from inside. Uh, and I think that's the big challenge that we now face, is what's actually required, not just to have transparency, but to actually say, no, here is a real conflict, um, or here is a sufficiently bad perception of a conflict that that this relationship is is bad and that we didn't need different rules a classic example on the revolving doors with post post separation employment are these rules that it's 12 months or 18 months before you can do a job what is magic about 12 or 18 months and if you ask uh, anti-corruption agencies internationally like the hong kong icac or whoever and i suspect colloquial colleagues that probably see this as well the quid pro quo and the payback and you know that the go with the relationships the return people can wait a lot longer than 12 or 18 months you know um that's for sure you know so they're just there's completely arbitrary rules like this that don't help us get to the core question which is is there a conflict is there a capture or a, or a perversion of, of what would otherwise be healthy policy um and or you know is there a sufficient perception of that that we've got to get back to those tests not just fulfill the transparency requirements i i feel like those tests are so difficult though i mean do you have you know some sort of ethics person sitting there in judgment and telling politicians which jobs they can and can't take i mean i think i to me there's an attraction to the 18 months because it's very clear cut um, at the very least, it ensures, you know, one, that they're not taking, you know, really topical inside knowledge with them. It kind of gives you that cooling off period in which the, the stuff you've learned in the portfolio becomes a little stale. It also takes away the, the perception issue that you might be doing the bidding of your future employer before you, you leave the post. So I actually quite like the 18 months. I think the issue with the 18 months is at the moment, people breach it all the time. There's no penalty attached and it's not enforced. Mm. Um, so, you know, to me, that is not a bad rule. It's actually the enforcement of the rule that's the issue. Um, I hear your points, but I just can't see how that more complicated system would actually work. Well, I, I don't think it's either or. I think those those sorts of where you can have a hard and fast rule like that, then you should and you should enforce it. And that's definitely step one. Um, but <laughs> I don't think that precludes us from having people commit to the higher principle um, and then, and it, it, then it comes to a different question of enforcement and judgment, as as you alluded to. But it highlights the fact that um, 
you know, our in some states as well, but our federal parliamentarians, there there is no code of conduct um, or even the statement of ministerial standards doesn't spell out what's the principle that we're actually, or doesn't you know, explicitly spell out, what's the principle we're trying to protect here? As a former minister of the Crown, what am I committing to in terms of the principle? And it's that I, you know, that I won't basically, you know, that I'll, that I'll maintain my commitment to integrity. And, and then that becomes the test. Um, so um, so it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy, but unless there's that commitment made at some point, then it's impossible to, to hold anybody to it. And so that's what you know, a parliamentary code of conduct enables people to do, is at least more clearly say, what are the principles here that we're trying to aspire to? Now, I'm conscious of time and I want to leave you a few minutes, AJ, to talk about um, the integrity system and the, your work on the kind of gaps in our integrity system and, and what might some options for reform be. So do you want to talk us through um, your recent paper? And I think there was copies of the, the summary um, outside if people are Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, it, it actually flows on directly from this question of, of whatever types of principles or whatever types of rules you have, you know, they're only as good as people's compliance and with them voluntarily and people's enforcement. So I think a lot of this, these questions are resonating at the moment in, in, in what is a high level of public support for doing something, especially at a federal level where this implosion of trust has been happening and in, in terms of, of actually in, increasing the enforcement and the rules. Um, and 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 uh, so, so one of the things we collected in the survey was was a more accurate measure of the level of public support for, say, a federal anti-corruption body, for example. Um, but the big question is what type of of enforcement regime? And so, so the the um, it's you know it's good to see that that people are looking for a, a solution, um, and it's important also that our research showed that that uh, not only does concern about corruption lead to declines of trust, but as we were talking about before, we actually have hard evidence that if people believe that a government is doing a good job of fighting corruption and corruption risks, it actually translates into positive trust. So this is actually the case. So, so governments that actually say, we are improving the machinery, we are including, we, you know, we are being more transparent, we are setting up institutions, we are actually gonna set up something that means that if, a, if an allegation of a ministerial, a breach of the ministerial standards or something uh, is alleged, that somebody independent will look at it and, um, rather than just ending up in a political war and a Senate inquiry and, you know, what we're doing at the moment. So, um, so I think we know that institutional strengthening is needed and one of the great things about the Grattan report which I can ex encourage everybody to to access when it becomes available because it's got lots of good stuff in it some of which we haven't touched on at all um, um, is uh, that it does need to translate into strengthened frameworks and strengthened institutions um, and so um, so so what we've just released um, is is uh, an options paper which you can grab people can grab the summary of which is really to sort of highlight that there are different options um, and to highlight that it is now crucial because of all these issues for us to, to move on from simply saying oh well it would all be fixed if you created an independent commission against a federal independent commission against corruption like New South Wales or like Queensland does that that would automatically fix it all because that doesn't automatically fix everything um, it's really important to think about it wouldn't necessarily fix these lobbying rules or the political donations and finance rules and or these other things which are actually dr really driving the, the bulk of concern if it was simply done you know as a standalone silver bullet type solution 
So, um, so we encourage people to think about the options, especially people with an interest in it, because what we map what we map out in the options paper from the National Integrity System Assessment, which is a collaboration involving Transparency International and a number of institutions, and supported by the Australian Research Council, Commonwealth Government funny, money, not funny, money, um, <laughs> and <coughs> what we what we've done is sort of say, well, we can do, you know, we can create a federal anti-corruption body as a standalone thing. But it wouldn't necessarily plug the big gaps, some of which we've been talking about, and others like the whistleblower protection gap at a federal level, which is very, very significant and substantial. And so we actually, um, what we want people to think about is, okay, what standard do we need to set for all sides of politics to say, right, it might not all happen tomorrow, but we, we need to have a path that actually says we'll set up something which is not necessarily just sort of a copy of a state anti-corruption commission or an international anti-corruption commission. We actually do want to have something well thought through to address all the, the sorts of significant gaps we've been talking about tonight. Do you think there's appetite for this type of change? Well, it, there clearly is because of the fact that the, um, the minor parties have committed and the crossbenchers have committed to at least the, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say the knee-jerk reform or the obvious reform of some kind of stronger federal anti-corruption body to plug, which will plug many of the gaps. And the opposition has announced as part of its policy that it would create um, an, an, an anti-corruption agency, an independent commission against corruption if in government. So, it, the, so the, the momentum is clearly there now in a way that clearly hasn't been there before. Um, and I think the key thing is for all sides of politics to realise that uh, a, that yes, reform is needed, which will address these issues, um, and that everybody should commit to it, and that it needs to be bipartisan to, to, to fulfil the purpose of restoring public confidence in, for the long term, but also that it needs to be not just something simple. Um, it needs to be something that, that actually deals with those gaps that most are, are of greatest concern and that it does actually be, needs to be something reasonably sophisticated. The good thing about the federal government is that it can take a long time to get around to doing things which other governments have done. But when it finally gets there, um, it should be able to turn the best and brightest minds to doing something sensible. Uh, and what we have to try and do is make sure that this is this this win this period of time this window of opportunity is one where that's the you know that's the assessment that all sides of politics make. Now I'm saying I'm sounding optimistic, I know, I, but the reality is that that combined with another scandal um, is is really you know we are in an environment where we can and really must make those decisions now because none of these pressures and none of these risks are going to get any lighter. They're only going to get harder and, and worse globally. So, so you know, we really do face this choice now. Well, I was going to say we were finishing on an optimistic note, but you just kind of brought the tone down a little, down a little bit at the end. Um, I do want to open up to audience questions now. So if you have a question, please wait for the microphone to come to you. Um, and because we've got limited time, please make it short and, and make sure it is a question. Thank you. Um, we have the woman in the white jacket at the end of the row. Thank you very much. Um, you just finished there talking about, um, I know Labor has said, I think, National Integrity Commission or something of those words that they will put into place, um, their version of a federal ICAC. Are, are you aware of um, how sophisticated that is and if it falls short, where it falls short? 
Sure. Um, I mean, it, it's on the Labor Party website. Um, it All that the Labor Party has committed to so far in that policy platform is a set of uh, basic principles that match the design of a good anti-corruption commission, like exists at the state level. Um, and they're very good principles. Um, and I'm happy to say that the Transparency International helped propose those, along with the Australia Institute and others. So there's nothing wrong with them. But, <coughs> excuse me, um, but there's two big problems. One is that's all it is so far, and there isn't any more detail in terms of plugging the, all these other gaps we've been talking about here tonight in terms of lobbying, political donations, enforcement, how that would be done, parliamentary standards in the broad, as opposed to hard and fast corruption by, by federal politicians. Um, there's no mechanisms you know, built into it, um, no codes of conduct for parliamentarians. Um, so um, the other thing that is interesting is that the, the Labor Party so far has only committed, to, or they, they put a costing on it, which came from the Parliamentary Budget Office, which is very, very low. Um, it's not much more than the existing infrastructure costs at a federal level, depending on how you interpret it. Um, it's based on the New South Wales ICAC, and I see friends from the New South Wales ICAC here on their budget, and the New South Wales ICAC is a very efficient organisation which does an enormous amount with not a huge number of people. So this is a good, you know, this, this is a good, um, this is a wonderful situation to be in if it works. Um, but the reality is that for the type of federal institutional strengthening that we're talking about, that type of money that's been talked about so far it's very hard to see that it, that it would be you know do the job for what's needed so um, so I think I think this is where the next the debate needs to move on um, so that we actually see some more detail and some more serious um, design in on you know on any proposals that are coming from anywhere including from the greens for that matter who have who have had le introduced legislation for a national integrity commission or anti-corruption body in every parliament since since Lindy used to work there, um, and um, and good on them for doing that, um, but but it's never been a very sophisticated model because it was never going to get passed. So um, so now it's much you know now we have to get much more serious because there's only going to be a limited window of opportunity under whichever whoever the government is that commits to do this. There'll only be a limited window of opportunity to put something good in place as opposed to something which we're all sitting around in five or ten years' time saying, oh, it needs to be strengthened, you know, because it was never done properly in the first place. I think the gentleman there in the black vest. Yep. <laughs> uh, I've been waiting for you to talk about uh, the influence through the media and just to give you a couple of quick examples, my memory goes back to the mining tax and an article which I think said they spent $20 million on advertising as the best return they ever got in the mining sector to sort of knock down that tax. And more recently in New South Wales, the stadia, I mean, one one view of that is, well, that's what the government needs to pay to get Alan Jones on side and give him a new stadium for his uh, rugby union. Mm -hmm. So where do you position and, and the media in terms of this influence relative to donations? It, it seems to be one of the key uh, avenues. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And we do touch on that in the report that sort of running these big public campaigns can be an effective strategy. So you're right, the mining industry spent $20 million. Um, they had a budget of $100 million. Um, so they that they got away <laughs> cheaply, you, you, could, you could argue. Um, you know, I think it's interesting to reflect on that was very clearly an effective strategy in that case. Many others since then have threatened mining style 
campaigns, but I, I don't think there's anything that's really had the same return on investment. Um, but I think there's a broader question about the, the role of media in these debates and, and something we reflect on in the report is um, the uncritical reporting on some of the claims of vested interests and um, an issue close to my own heart is um, the use of dodgy economic modelling. Um, so quite often they will commission an economic consulting firm to come up with a, a number um, and there is nothing more frustrating with one, they don't identify who's paid for the modelling. I think that's just poor reporting. Um, but two, they, they don't really, you know, go out and, and kick the tyres on that number and, and ask for alternative views. And it, it's hard because often these economic models are sort of black boxes. Um, but what it means is you can influence a public debate quite cheaply. You know, you spend $10,000 on a consultant report and all of a sudden you've got, um, you know, front page stories pushing your view in the public debate. And if you win the public hearts and minds, the politicians will often come with them. So I think this is another area and certainly another avenue of influence it's just one that it's a lot harder to do anything about other than it, to appeal to journalists to <laughs> report this stuff as, as accurately and um, as, as closely as possible. Can I add a little glimmer of hope in that? Um, that actually one of the things that was really interesting about the mining tax campaign is that it was actually incredibly ineffective at shifting public opinion that actually um, for the amount of effort the miners put into it, public's you know, when they first announced the tax, slightly over half thought it was a good idea. And by the time that Labor, um, that Labor uh, backpedaled on it, only slightly less than half thought it was a good idea. What was interesting about that was that what the media, the miners were sufficiently media savvy that they actually realised that their scope for changing public opinion about how much tax they should pay was not very good, but their scope for convincing Australians that their government was crap was much better. And so actually, um, what was it? Was it? Gosh, I'm going to get these numbers wrong. Um, it was at least 17% that I think Rudd's approval approval rating fell over the six weeks of the mining campaign. And so it was that whole thing of actually the public kind of called bullshit on their idea that they should pay less tax, but we were much more susceptible to the argument um, of them going out there and doing a really systematic white-anting effort at trying to erode our confidence that that, that government was competent. And, you know, they left a few chinks in their armour for the miners to get in through, but still... Yeah. Uh, other questions? Um, gentleman in the red towards the back. Thank you. Um, you presented some information about uh, where ministers go to after um, Parliament. Do we have similar sort of information and data about senior public servants and you know, particularly <laughs> people who come from and go to um, industry and... Um, the interplay between industry and, and some of the regulatory bodies and the influence there? I believe there is a journalist currently compiling such information and it should be in the public domain shortly. Um, I think people have done it for certain sectors in the past. I think um, they've traced senior bureaucrats from defence and, and looked at those that ended up in lobbying roles, but I haven't seen anything more systematic. But as I said, I think there is something in the works that, that might be in the public domain sooner rather than later. I don't know if you know of anything else, Lindy. 
Um, it's it's a challenging exercise. So I mean, doing that work for the ministers um, required a lot of trawling of of LinkedIn profiles and various other documents to try and work out where they all ended up. Um, and you know, that's that's the easiest group to target because at least you have the full set um, that are there in the first place. It's um, you know, to to go back and work out who were the public service leaders over time or who were the ministerial advisors over time is a it's a huge data intensive exercise. We have, um, yeah, this gentleman here. So, um, the Aust sorry, the American government is much worse on money for access and uh, special interests. That's what I've gathered here, especially from what Dr. Brown said. But their rank on the Corruption Perceptions Index in 2017 is 75 as opposed to Australia's 77. Is that because, so, you know, it's not much lower than Australia's. Is it because... Americans perceive their country to be less corrupt than it is, or have they figured out a way to deal with money for access and lobbying that could be brought over to Australia? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, but it's very, I mean, it's very hard to unpack. Um, the, the Corruption Perceptions Index is not based on public opinion. It's based on a composite of a range of other surveys of, of, that deal with corruption control. Um, and it's and and the U.S. result is very hard to interpret because of the size and the scale of the U.S. What people people are forming their judgment on. Um, so um, I, I I don't think there's any straight answer to that question. Uh, why is it that people think that um, or that that the people who are rating corruption control through a variety of surveys don't think that America is that much worse than us um, comparatively? is, is um, interesting. I guess what it automatically makes me think is, um, is where are we going? You know, we've been sliding on the, the CPI and I think we're going to go worse, further, um, especially after this week and especially after the Senate inquiry into Minister Dutton, irrespective of what it finds. You know? So it's, it's, um, um, it's uh, a really good question. I think the, one of the things that I think people in the US rely on, um, which um, they, they rely on the democratic system to self-correct. Um, the, certainly the public perception in the US is taking a big beating as a result of the Trump administration. Um, and, and that confidence, the same way that we had a big, we've had a big implosion of trust, not solely caused by, but certainly absolutely accentuated by revolving door prime ministerships and that sense of, of instability and lack of control and that the system is out of control that you know that's affecting the us now but at a state level um there's a lot of self-correction of corruption that goes on all the time there's quite a lot of exposure of corruption that goes on all the time and quite a lot of self-correction anti-corruption agencies judicial corruption gets picked up uh, the fbi um you know so there's a lot of um I think there's an ongoing confidence that the system as a whole is resilient enough to cope with all of this, you know, this evil um, that goes on, all these risks, um, notwithstanding. And, and also the fact that the political finance, the open sort of political finance regime has been there for so long and it's been so much, it's so much part of the furniture that it, it, there's not a growing sense that it's, that it in particular is uh, probably any other, that would be my feeling, that it's any worse you know now than it's ever been so it's sort of stable whereas we've got this problem that we've gone from traditionally high tr levels of trust 
and they're collapsing for a reason because we're and and this is my this is our theory this is my theory and it's strengthened by our survey's results this time by the correlation between people's uh, trust and and their belief whether people are doing anything about it or not I don't think it matters that if corruption is being exposed or alleged if at the same time there is an institutional response to it in which people will have confidence and then they go right okay yeah yeah well we we yeah well actually we knew that would probably anybody who would have the opportunity would be in it for themselves and get out to get you know out to get what they can but it's you know it's been alleged exposed and it's being dealt with and the, and people then go oh okay right good back to sleep you know back on with my life and um and i think that's that's sort of the australian way so i think part of the problem that we've got is the concern that this stuff is out there but when it's alleged, it seems to turn into this, this he says, she says thing where, no, there's nothing to see here and there's going to be no investigation. Therefore, there's got to be a Senate inquiry, which is not going to be able to conclude anything, but it's certainly going to make everybody feel, you know, worry about it a lot more. Um, but there probably won't be a satisfactory resolution at the end of the day and people will probably still suspect that that happened and worse and that other stuff are doing it and there's no infrastructure to deal with it. And I think that's what um, that's you know that's my sort of technician's view, I guess, of how these things pan out, how they end up influencing the aggregate assessment that goes into some of those surveys. I think we had um, one last question at the the back there, and this will be the last one. Um, so you spoke before a little bit about the humans aspect of lob of lobbying. Um, and the fact, of course, that there's, you know, hundreds of pages of documents for people to read and therefore they rely on lobbyists to influence them. And I think that, that seems like a pretty big challenge. You know, it's quite clear cut when you have bribes exchanging hands, but when you've got subtle influence <laughs> playing out, I guess my question is how can we increase evidence-based decision-making within our system? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, so I think, you know, institutions matter for this. So I think, you know, we've talked a lot about how you control lobbying and how you control money, but you need to think about how we can boost information, evidence, countervailing voices, I think. Um, so I think, you know, we've got some pretty good institutions in place now, for example, Parliamentary Library, which is a great resource for, for politicians to deal, um, to draw on. Um, we were speaking a little bit before we started about the Parliamentary Budget Office, which I think has been a really great innovation. And it's actually meant that um, crossbenchers, um, parties in opposition can actually now come up with a policy and go and have it independently costed by you know, a, a credible group of normally ex-Treasury staff. So I think those have been good institutions. People have talked about whether you need something else in there that would help with policy development. Um, so, you know, as, you know, almost like a, a bureaucracy for opposition um, that would actually kind of do the, the role of the bureaucracy in helping the opposition party think through its party, the policies and the costs and benefits. Um, you know, that's a pretty big change, but I think that's certainly an interesting proposal. Um, and then I think the other piece of the puzzle is thinking about how we boost countervailing voices. So some of the groups that aren't particularly well represented in policy debates, um, I do a lot of work in intergenerational inequality and um, young people's voices tend to be um, much 
less um, prominent in debates compared to the voices of older Australians. They've got a lot more lobby groups and they're a lot more vocal. Um, so whether, you know, government should be more actively trying to, to fund those sorts of groups that are actually there as, as counterweights in different debates. Do you guys want to... The only other... Um, the only other thing I'd add to the mix is I think that there's also a, an issue around the shifting role of the public service, um, that we've seen a hollowing out of the public service and um, that over, you know, if we think that over the last, we've seen this sort of massive explosion of ministerial offices that are, they increasingly um, bring in their own political staff and are relying on sources of information other than the public service and that that distrust or the issues that have developed in the relationship um, between political officers and the public service seems to be fueling some of this, that there seems to be so much tendency for them to go uh, to other sources of information who have actually vested interests rather than going to the public service for key information. Yeah, the only two ideas I'd add pretty quickly would be that we need to rediscover and sort of reinstitutionalize to some degree some fundamental acceptance that collaborative governance with multiple stakeholders is part of how we make good policy. Um, and that's the great tragedy of the National Energy Guarantee. I mean, that's what so many people cannot believe, that, that the political football that was used for the internal power play for the leadership and for you know the symbolic direction of the party was going to cause the destruction of something that had taken so long to develop with so many stakeholders involved and supporting it um, i think that has then compounded this this sort of implosion of trust that hasn't yet been measured but which is about to be um, so i think that's part of i think rediscovering that as part of the way we do public policy is is actually vital um, the other the other idea that i had quite recently is is the idea of um, pro bono lobbying, pro bono lobbyists. Um, I mean, lawyers. When when lawyers become a few lawyers in the room, um, the you know when when lawyers actually get trained, you get trained to the idea that actually you know there will be public defenders out there, there will be duty solicitors out there. Um, they're actually access to justice requires um, professionals to be provided for people who won't, wouldn't otherwise have them to, to level the playing field, literally to level the, or at least try a bit, to level the playing field. Um, and um, and we could, if we're going to have public funding for elections, why not have public funding for, for lobbying? so that um, people can get together and say, right, we want to go to Parliament House, thanks. Who's our duty lobbyist for the day or the week who will help us out and take us around, get us in the door? Uh, we, we, you know, we, we want, you know, et cetera. So that's just an idea that um, I don't know whether anybody's had that particular one before, but um, Lindy and I are going to talk about it some more. <laughs> I like that. We're finishing with some big ideas, so thank you for that. Um, so I just want to say... Thank you to the State Library for having us. Um, thank you to Megan French, our Grattan events person who does all the hard work in making this happen. Um, and can you please join me in, in thanking AJ and Lindy for their, their time and expertise. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.
grattan.org.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.